Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Just a quick reminder that we're recording remotely, which of course is not my preference, but appreciate your patience with the sound quality. Today's guest is someone who, like many of us, searched for a long time before receiving a diagnosis. Sarah Ramey recently came out with her first memoir about her health journey, and I can't wait to discuss it with her. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So happy to have you here, and thank you for your flexibility schedule-wise. I know with coronavirus and travel and book launch and life, it's been a little nutty, but glad we made it happen. We made it happen despite all possible odds. <laughs> I thought for sure that we were going to end up doing it in D.C. together when I was coming down to go to the NIH, and mm-hmm. instead I'm sitting on my bathroom floor, and you are where? <laughs> I'm sitting in my kitchen, so <laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> One day we'll meet. Anyway, yeah. so tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So my name is Sarah Ramey. I'm from Washington, D.C., and I'm actually living back in Washington now. I lived away for a long time, but I just moved back. I am a musician. I go by the name of Wolf Larson and a writer. My first book just came out. It's called The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. And it's funny when you ask me that. (laughs) I've always thought of myself as a writer, but I wasn't really until you know, last week when this book came out, because I've, I've not really published anything until recently. So I do get to finally say that. Sounds like it's time to really own that. Yeah. So let's dig into your health story, which began in 2003, when you went through a botched urologic procedure. Can you talk a little bit about what led to this procedure, what the procedure was, and then what came from that? Sure. So I was a senior in college. This is a long time ago now. This is 17 years ago. And I was pretty, you know, quote unquote normal. I was just going about life. I did not have really any medical conditions, but I had a lot of UTIs. I had these recurring UTIs starting six months prior. And, you know, as anyone with UTIs knows, that's uh, quite painful. And, And so I finally went home at Christmas break and my parents are both physicians. And so they said, you know, we're going to send you to this friend of ours. He's excellent and he'll get you sorted out. So I went and this doctor, he evaluated me and he said, you know, I think this is, you actually don't have UTI anymore. This is just spasm. And so we're going to do a procedure called a urethral dilation, which is where I just right here in the office, I'm going to insert this instrument in the urethra and we're essentially going to uh, stretch it or rip it a little bit and that will break the muscle spasm. And it's, you know, it's not comfortable, but it's, it's really fine. You'll be, you'll be absolutely fine. This 90 year old woman just did it down the hallway. You're absolutely can do it. And so I was like, okay, sounds good. And so I go, I saddle up, I settle in to do this procedure and he begins and it is just the most blindingly painful thing I'd ever experienced in my life. I mean, it was like being hit by lightning in my urethra and it was horrible. And uh, so this sort of scene ensues where I'm very, very upset and he's very upset and 
it's all just quite bad. But finally, it's over. I go home. And, I, you know, I was just thought, well, that was quite unfortunate, but I'll be fine. And I just need to sleep it off. And I'll be good to go tomorrow. Uh, so I do go to sleep. And that night I wake up and I'm have this incredibly high fever. I'm shaking uncontrollably. My whole body hurts. Uh, my uh, urethra is burning. And, you know, I was at home with my mom, who's a doctor, and I went downstairs. And it was obvious to her that I had become septic. And so she took me to the hospital. And I was septic. And I was admitted to the hospital for a week and treated for sepsis. And so this thing that was supposed to be just this super easy procedure was actually this horrifying, very painful procedure that then turned into this huge event. But even all of that, still, I was like, well, this is all quite unfortunate, but of course, I'm going to be just fine. And I'm going to go home and I'm everything is going to be fine. How did you have that mentality to think everything's going to be fine, just like you did before you decided to go through with the procedure? Yeah. So I had until that time been incredibly lucky. Number one, I had my health. And then the other thing was that my parents were both physicians. And so I just had always had excellent care and just really trusted the medical system that it was, you know, the place of of miracles and where everything can be fixed or at the very least taken care of in terms of support. You know, if it couldn't be fixed, at least I would be guided through what to do and, and how to how to think about it and how to move forward. And that just was my worldview. I didn't, I didn't know any better. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So you're in the hospital for a week. You're told that you are septic. Mm -hmm. What did that mean? So sepsis is, I always describe it, it's not exactly a bacterial infection of the bloodstream, but it's when bacteria infects the bloodstream, and then the sepsis is the sort of toxic reaction that the body has. And it's life-threatening. People frequently, you know, die from sepsis. And so when that happened, first of all, a million doctors, because my parents both worked in this system, came to my side, and everybody was so concerned, you know, what could have happened? And it was just like a complete mystery to everybody, because the urologist was like, well, I have no idea. I mean, the procedure was normal. I'm really sorry that this happened, but this is a freak accident and we we just can't know what happened here. So they, uh, out of an abundance of caution, not really understanding what was wrong, they sent me back to college because I still had the last semester left uh, with a portable uh, pick line of, of antibiotics. A pick line is when they put a, a line in your arm that goes into your heart and you infuse every day with your own little grenades of, uh, of antibiotics. And I was supposed to do that for a month. And so I went back to college and was just, again, expecting to just sort of slowly get better. But I mean, long story short, I did not. I went from being in the middle of directing the school musical. I was the president of the acapella group, the the women's acapella group. I was the singer in a super loud rock band. I was like, I was really involved, (laughs) a lot of stuff. And all of a sudden, I couldn't do any of that. I was sleeping 18 hours a day. I felt like I had the flu constantly, uh, the pelvic pain that before had been uncomfortable because the UTIs went from being like that to being like very painful all the time. And there was no explanation for any of this. And at the beginning, it was just, you know, 
well, you've been through something terrible, the body just has to get better. But as the weeks went on, it became very clear that it was actually just getting worse and something was was wrong. And so that was when basically by spring break, I went back home and started to seek out all the best medical care that, that we could find to see all the different specialists and just try to figure out what was wrong. And they went around and around and around to specialist after specialist who all took it very, very, very seriously in the beginning. But then as all the tests came back that they were looking for everything that they could think of as everything came back negative, 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 uh, a new diagnosis started to emerge, which is that because your tests are normal, what really must be going on here, uh, as one urologist said, is that like so many young women her age, uh, the problem here is actually psychosomatic. And that was like, I still remember, like I can still feel it in my body, this person saying this, because uh, he said it to my parents who were sitting next to me. He didn't even look at me to say it to me. He said it to my parents as if I was their, you know, poor, poor ward that they had taken in. And then, you know, he was giving them his professional advice. It was just so horrifying because it was clearly to me, especially at the beginning, that was clearly not the case. It was clearly, I had been just fine. And all of a sudden after this procedure, I was very sick and something was very wrong. And I just could not believe that somebody would say, oh, this is clearly a hallucination or some sort of psychological problem that just, it was so upsetting to me. So at what point in hearing that from this doctor, did you go, okay, clearly this is not the doctor for me. It's not psychological. I need to get some sort of answers. What was that next step? How did you navigate that? That's a great question because that is not what I thought to myself. I mean, I was very hurt by him saying that to me, but that was the first time that like I had an indignant response, but I also a not small part of me was like, well, maybe that's true. It's not like I immediately was like, oh gosh, case closed. I, I understand now, but it was the beginning of like my own mind starting to turn against me. And it really was just because I didn't have any sense whatsoever. And partly this is because in 2003, I think it is different than now where there is much more skepticism of, you know, being treated that way, or or particularly if it's like, you know, an old male doctor and a young female, I I think that there's a little bit more support around the idea of like, okay, it's not yeah, it's probably not you. <laughs> uh, but but at the time, I mean, it just didn't even occur to me. Um, but it really it wasn't just him. As I went around to more and more and more doctors, especially as more and more of them started to say that, it just became the sort of reinforcing narrative where everybody was like, well, I mean, it could be that. And, you know, we, we really don't know what else this could be. And so, you know, I, I know... You probably don't want to hear that, but uh, but that that could be it. And you know, and somewhere in there, somebody suggested to me the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which I don't have fibromyalgia. I have chronic fatigue syndrome, but there's a lot of overlap. But I had never heard of that diagnosis at all in 2003 or four, whenever that was. And I looked it up, and I was like, "This is me." I mean, this is a lot of what I'm experiencing. Yes, like let's look at that. And then I went to the next doctor, and I was like. 
duck, what do you think about fibromyalgia? Could that be part of what's been triggered here? And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't even tell anybody that you think you have fibromyalgia. That's just code for crazy. And I I just, yeah, and I just could not believe it. I was like, wait, what? I was like, but but here it is in, in your medical textbook. What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, 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 don't, but I don't buy that. It's not, it's not real. And a lot of doctors had that exact same attitude. And in, in the beginning, like it was just like this real mix of, I was so indignant, but also so just believing and trusting at the same time. Like I just didn't know what to make of any of this. It was very, very disorienting and disconcerting. And what really happened was that for a while, I just stopped going to doctors because it was so painful to be told these like debilitating things over and over and over again. Um, And I also thought I didn't know that there was a community of people like me. That wouldn't come until a couple of years later when a boyfriend of mine, his partner on at his work, his wife was just like me. And so they introduced us and she told me her story. And I was like, Oh my God. It's like, that is crazy. I can't believe that there's somebody else that has, you know, this same set of symptoms. Like, cause I really thought I was the only person in the world that had ever, this had ever happened to. But then shortly after that, I met, you know, a ton of other people who, once I had an awareness that I was not alone and I was speaking up about it more, more and more people started to come out of the woodwork and talking to me and being like, oh, that's me too, me too, me too, me too. It's really interesting how that works. And I've seen that a lot with the podcast and guests and for myself, especially of thinking I'm the only person in the world who's ever experienced anything yeah. like this. And even if I tried to Google it, no one would ever come up that has something mm-hmm. like this. And then you realize that there are tons of people out there, whether it's the exact same thing or similar. Yeah. But one of the questions I have for you is where your parents were through this, given that they were doctors especially when you were told you were crazy and it was psychological. How did they react and how did they help you navigate this time? It was complicated. You know, they didn't just like abandon me and be like, "Mm, I think you've just made the whole thing up. That didn't happen to that extent. But certainly there was, I don't know how to say this nicely, like a certain amount of entertaining of that idea that they both did that was like, well, I mean, even if it's not that, why don't we just try putting you on these anxiety medications and antidepressants and sedatives and just let's just see what happens, which, you know, I, I can't say that in their shoes that I would have acted any differently. Like they didn't know what was wrong and they really had tried to figure it out. And yeah, my dad was the first person like a gastroenterologist suggested that I go on Paxil. And I went home and I called my dad and asked him what he thought about that. And he was like, yeah, I think it's a good idea. I think you should just at least give it a shot. You don't have any any other leads here. Why don't you just do it? And so he called in the medication for me. And that, as I read about in the book, you know, I had been unhappy because I was sick for quite a while, but I would not have called myself depressed. But when I went on Paxil, I became horrifically uh, suicidal, uh, extremely depressed. I mean, it was just, it was horrifying, but I didn't know that it was the medication because especially at that time in 2006, I don't think they had been sued yet. Um, And so they weren't making sure that they followed and tracked every single person that was put on one of these drugs to make sure that it didn't cause, you know, paradoxical reaction where these psychiatric issues can come out of nowhere. And that, that is what happened to me. But I didn't know that. And so I thought that it was just confirming 
the diagnosis that they had already given me. I was like, oh, look, I am very depressed. Just as they said, look at how I'm behaving now and, and look at my thoughts because I just did not know enough. And so that was very difficult. And I, and I do think, to your question about my parents, I think because they were sort of tolerant of that avenue of treatment in the beginning, that definitely sort of drove a wedge between us where I felt very distant from them and, and kind of abandoned by them that they wouldn't protect me, that they wouldn't stand up and be like, no, no, it's not that. This is a real physiologic process that we that we need to get to the bottom of. I felt very hurt by that for a long time. But then, you know, it's been going on for so long that over the course of time, they both learned a lot more about these types of mystery problems like chronic fatigue syndrome, POTS, fibromyalgia, all of that. But I also feel like I got to experience a lot more of like what that must be like to be a parent who's a physician with no training at all in learning about these diseases. And so if you don't know anything at all, I think that it can look like, you know, maybe your daughter is experiencing some sort of, you know, psychosomatic issue if you don't know any better. So I, I sort of learned to have a more understanding and compassion for them, why they might have thought that for at least for part of the journey. It's a real challenge when it comes to the invisible side of illness for that exact reason, because nobody knows what it's like to be in your body and the symptoms yeah. that you're experiencing. And there's no way to prove it to anyone if there's nothing visible. So I can only imagine what that was like for you. At what point in this journey did you get diagnosed and what exactly were you diagnosed with? I think like a lot of people like me, it's been a lot of like rolling diagnoses. Um, I mean, it's very common. So, so I call people like me Womi as a woman with a mysterious illness. And so for Womi's, the common diagnoses are chronic fatigue syndrome, postural orthostatic tachycardia or POTS, mast cell activation, um, Ehlers-Danlos, uh, Epstein-Barr, chronic Lyme, Lyme. There's, there's a whole bunch of different things that kind of go together. And so in my case, I'll just go with what we landed on finally, which is a pretty classic case of chronic fatigue syndrome, which is very commonly comes on after a triggering event like sepsis, or in my case, it could have been either the sepsis or the trauma of the procedure itself. We don't really know. But also uh, something called postural orthostatic tachycardia, which it's a problem in the autonomic system where your blood pressure can't regulate properly and you can't stand up for very long. Something called complex regional pain syndrome, which is when something that for somebody else that would be painful becomes this like unspeakable level of pain that is truly impossible to describe to somebody that's not experienced it, but it's it's just extremely exaggerated pain. And then also they discovered not that long ago that that original incident with the urologist, that there was actually an accident during that procedure. And there, there was actually a ton of scar tissue on the left side of the vagina. And then he made a, a false track uh, next to the yeah. urethra. Yeah. <laughs> How was that recently discovered? So I had thought something along those lines for a very long time and had asked doctor after doctor after doctor to do a better transvaginal sonogram. Because in the very beginning, they did a transvaginal sonogram that showed a small mass on the left side of the vagina. And I was like, I mean, that's something. Everybody keeps saying that your tests are negative. That's something. Can we look at that again? And everybody's like, oh, that's nothing, sweetie. And so I asked 
over and over again for them to repeat that. At the Mayo Clinic, I asked them to do that. And they said, absolutely not. Because in my case, because the pain is so bad in the vagina, that I have this complex regional pain syndrome. The whole point is that the pain is so, so bad that I couldn't do, normally they just do it right there in the office and they put the device inside of you. But I can't do that. That's like the whole point. I can't have sex. I can't sit down. I can't do anything. And so they would have had to have done it under anesthesia. And so they were like, we would have to book an OR that's completely outside of standard you know, operating procedures. That would be a complete indulgence that you just think in your mind that you've got this problem. We're not going to book an OR for something that you've just made up. Like, sorry, lady. And so <laughs> that happened over and over and over again until basically <laughs> this other doctor like made a mistake uh, in, in my case and in our sort of reconciling conversation. I was like, listen, I'm going to overlook this mistake if you will just think about what could be wrong in my vagina. Like, just think about it. Tell me what's wrong. And he's like, you know, I think you might have been injured in that original thing that happened to you. And you need to go talk to this particular doctor. Tell him that I sent you and he'll do this transvaginal sonogram under anesthesia. And they might find something because you haven't had it done because you're in too much pain. And it's too difficult to, to organize without other evidence beyond you just saying that you want it. So I went, I saw that doctor, I wake up from anesthesia and I was like, it's nothing, right? Because I was so used to having a million tests, they're yeah, all negative. And he's like, no, he's like, you've got like a, a big mass right where you were saying was all the pain. He's like, you can feel it with your hand. <laughs> he was like, it's really big. And he's like, so... He was like, it's either a neuroma, which is a tumor, a, a benign tumor that grows in the nerve uh, as a result of basically surgical trauma or any other trauma to the nerve. It's excruciatingly painful. <laughs> and if left untreated, the most common thing that happens is that it becomes complex regional pain syndrome, <laughs> which is what I have. So anyway, so they, I finally went to a surgeon who went in and removed a very large mass of scar tissue that was entrapping all of those nerves. And he had to resect some of the nerves and do a lot of reconstructive surgery. And it helped somewhat, but as he had said, he was like, you know, it's been there for so long. Your, your pain pathways may just be so irrevocably altered that it's just going to be painful for a very long time or forever. He's like, I, I can't tell you for sure, but, but that is definitely what was causing it. It's just like a huge mass basically squeezing all of these extremely sensitive nerves in the vagina and has been doing so for 17 years. 17 years. Yeah. Of being told, like, don't worry your pretty little vagina. It's nothing. Like, I have never felt so, like, vindicated and happy on the one hand and so filled with rage and just, like, murderous feelings. Like, I just could not, I, I just, I just couldn't. Because as they all said, everyone that had evaluated it afterwards, they all said the same thing. They were like, well, I mean, you're in a bad way now because, right, the way that pain works in the body, if the thing that's causing the pain does not get removed, you really can develop these very severe, impossible to reverse pain syndromes. Um, but if they had just fixed it at the beginning, then that wouldn't be the case. You'd be fine. <laughs> it's just it's tough. <laughs> intense yeah so what is the pain level now and how do you navigate and manage it you know relative 
to myself, like relative to how it used to be, it is better because it had started to spread out over almost half of my body. That's what happens with complex regional pain syndrome. It like starts to spread. And so it's really shrunken back down to the more manageable, like just the sort of lower part of the abdomen and the vagina. And that's, and it's still extremely painful. I mean, it feels like there's like a nail hammered into the left side of my pelvis. And so that's quite bad, but it is better than it was in that I do try to like remember that even though (laughs) pain is, I mean, unless I I always say (laughs) to my doctors, they're like, but it's less than before, right? That's positive. And I'm like, "Mm, that it is, it is significantly less. But like if my arm is on fire and you put out 75% of the fire, (laughs) it doesn't matter. It still feels 100% on fire. And so that's really how I would liken it. Like I can feel that less of the surface area hurts. That's true. It's just that the parts that still hurt are so bad. So the way that I navigate it, I mean, I don't take pain medication because they make me too sleepy and I just can't function. I already have so many energy issues. It makes me too non-functional, but I take like gabapentin and low-dose naltrexone and that, that helps a little bit. And then I don't know. It's like you you just start to adapt. It just becomes a part of your life and you just have to, you just have to get on. And like, you just have to just try to figure out a way to do what you can to try to like have as many positive inputs in your life as you can to try to crowd out the bad from just taking over everything. But, but that's a, a real, I mean, I'm not going to lie. That's a, it's a real struggle. Have you found a doctor that you trust and is supportive of you and actually knows how to navigate this with you? Yeah. So, you know, in the course of 17 years, I've seen over 150 doctors and there are I would say three or four doctors, most recently, I just have a new doctor who's pretty good, four doctors in 150 who have been excellent and caring. And, you know, just, it's interesting to me, they're not like standout physicians that are just like top of their game, like amazing. It's just that they treat me like regular doctors treat other people other patients. <laughs> they just, you know, like a person that they believe that they're trying to help because they got into medicine to help people. But these people, uh, they do do that with me. And it's like, they're my favorite people on planet Earth. Like, I just am so grateful for their care and support. It's what I always say to any doctor that I, whenever I talk to doctors about trying to educate them about chronic fatigue syndrome and things like that, I just cannot underscore enough how important it is to just stop like 100% any part of you that doesn't believe in these problems. You just, you got to do whatever it takes internally to just, to stop doing that and to stop treating patients this way because it is so damaging and it's unnecessary. It's not, it doesn't comport with the science and it's so painful for the patient to have to experience that over and over and over again. When for the doctor, all they have to do is just not act like that. They can just say, I don't know what's wrong with you. And and instead of putting that back on the patient saying, you know, but I will work with you. I will support you. I will try to find anything, any small thing that might be able to help you because, you know, that's what we do. That's what doctors are for. Like just that would be 
so healing for so many people that have these types of problems because it, it really is true that the hundreds of people that I've interviewed, the illnesses themselves are, are very bad, but it's the experience of being told that you don't have that illness or that you're making it up or that you're a liar over and over again that is, I think, by far the most sort of damaging part of the whole thing because you need the world around you not to like coddle you, but to just have some sort of basic affirmation that like your reality is a shared reality with, with other people and that it's not that you're just completely living in a different world from everyone else and always at odds with everyone else. Like that's such a, a terrible way to feel. You can't see, but I'm shaking my head like crazy <laughs> right now because so many of my guests and listeners have acknowledged the same yeah. thing and the importance of finding a doctor who is willing to go as far as you need to go in digging and figuring out what the problem is and what kind of solutions you can come up with and just knowing that they're compassionate and willing to support you is huge. And when you're going through any sort of physical pain or ailment or any sort of issue, and it becomes psychological because it's so draining and exhausting to go through and navigate, to be told that this is not real has to be the most oh, frustrating thing ever. So I love that you said that, and I think it's such an important thing to acknowledge. With all that you went through and 150 plus doctors and this experience, you then recently published this book, The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness, which just came out a few weeks ago. What made you decide to start writing this book, and what do you hope that readers take away from it? So really a lot of the things that we just talked about just now, which is that you know, that feeling in the beginning that I was the only person this had ever happened to, that feeling of aloneness with this family of problems is very common. And it is, like I said, very damaging. Uh, and it's totally unnecessary. Like, it's not true. You're not alone. There are so many people like this. And so the sooner that you can sort of be recognized and feel seen and, and feel that you're not alone, that what's happening to you, these symptoms of feeling tired all the time, of your body aching, not being able to participate in your life anymore, of having all these gastrointestinal issues and maybe an autoimmune disease and an endocrine problem, that that's all just par for the course for having this sort of neuroendocrine immune family of problems. And so I just really wanted to basically, you know, writing a book or, or making any anything like this is just an act of, it's exactly what you do. It is making the invisible visible. And it's so important because just for the reason that you just said, when you compound illness with also feeling completely left out in the cold and completely alone and isolated and like you're making it up or you're a liar. I mean, just it's this unbelievable cocktail of suffering that does not have to be that way. I, I can't alleviate the physical suffering, but the mental anguish of feeling that you are so alone and that and that you're not even telling the truth, I mean, that is wrong. And that is something that really can change right now. I mean, there is no reason that any doctor should be treating patients like this that way anymore. I just think it's that it's not in the medical training yet. And so if you're not trained that way, then you just... There's a whole variety of reasons why doctors act this way, but 
it doesn't have to be that way. And so I wanted to write something that would be both educational for patients so that they could have a better understanding of themselves, but also for uh, physicians and for people in medicine to read an experience from the patient's perspective of what it's like. Because I think that what happens is that, you know, even as indignant as I am and as much as I have thought about this you know, 140 of those 150 doctors have no idea that that's the case because I didn't say that to them because you've got like 10 minutes with this person and I'm not going to like go into my rant about like, (laughs) you know, how they're not right about this and they need to educate themselves better. It's like, you're just, you're just trying to like get your list of symptoms out and all of a sudden you're being sort of rotated back out the door again. And so I think that for doctors and for nurses and for anybody in the in the medical establishment, I think it's really useful to to just read an account by a person that is all there and is explaining things in a cool, calm, rational way. I think that it makes a difference in understanding, like, oh, maybe I've misjudged this patient population. Um, that's been my experience with giving this to a lot of doctors and, and actually to, to a lot of men, I have to say. I've had a bunch of men read the book and they're like, man, I really have a completely different perspective on like five of my past girlfriends that had a lot of these problems and I just thought that they were crazy or I thought that they were annoying or all of these things and and I don't feel that way anymore and that to me, I'm like, that is a success. That's good. Wow. So are those male doctors or are those friends of yours? Those are male friends of mine, but several male physicians have read it and their response is a little bit different. Every doctor that's read this has had the same conversation with me, which is that they just all feel really bad. And they've actually all been very um, candid. They're like, you're not wrong. This is exactly how I've treated patients. In my mind, I did not feel that I was doing them a disservice. I really thought that it was a psychosomatic problem and that I was helping them by getting the medications that they needed and to feel better. And that, you know, if I never heard from them again, I just sort of assumed that either they got better or that those medications helped them or or something like that. And I just didn't know. And I think that that's correct. That's sort of what I mean about those 140 doctors that I never saw again. They don't know that they like hurt me deeply and that, and that it negatively impacted my life. And so I think that there's just, there's like a break in the feedback loop that happens with this type of patient and their physicians because the power dynamic is so imbalanced. You like don't feel that you can like talk back because you need these people so much. And also you're not going to waste your precious energy on fighting a losing battle. And so, so that, that is part of like the goal here is actually to, obviously not right now. I think doctors, you know, doctors right now are doing what doctors are amazing at that I love doctors for that I I am not an anti-doctor person doctors are doing incredible heroic work it's just that doing that type of work does not mean that you also you know at a later point get to treat some patients like they're annoying and irritating and not worth your time I mean that's just that's not how it works well it sounds like you're really helping to educate not only people similar to you and I who have been through the ringer with this stuff, but really getting to the people who are impacting our lives and helping to raise the awareness of how they're treating people that they may not be as aware of in their everyday lives, that they're just sort of getting through their day, 
trying to help people as much as they can, but not seeing that impact that they could make that could be negative. And by you sharing your story, you're helping them to see how they could change things, which is so huge, so huge. So I hope you feel good about that given, you know, all these 17 years of struggling and having to go through this stuff to know that there's some level of light at the end of the tunnel. One other thing that I wanted to ask you before we end here is you mentioned that you're a musician along with being a writer. Do you find that there's a connection between health and music and what you put out is related to your health in some capacity? For me, the way that music kind of works with my illness is that me playing music doesn't change my health status, but it definitely is an extremely important uh, emotional outlet for me to have something that's creative to do with, you know, <laughs> murderous homicidal feelings to, to take that and to make it into something that is art and music and taking, you know, a lot of feelings that are uh, quite difficult to just sit with and not have anything to do with and to, you know, let that inform the way that you write a song, not that I write murderous songs, but just to let a lot of that negativity have a way to come out that feels beautiful or creative or just a release, something that doesn't have to stay inside of me. And that's been, for me, this huge gift has been sort of becoming a musician because partly I've always done music stuff, but I didn't really know how to play music. And I only learned because um, kind of like what's happening with everybody with it's like staying at home right now. Everybody's like learning to play the guitar and how to paint and all this stuff. <laughs> That's what happened with me. But because of the illness, I was just trapped inside all the time. And so I had a lot of time to focus on things like learning to play the guitar, which I did. And that really helped me to really feel like I could develop an important part of myself that might have just atrophied if I had, you know, become a journalist and become super, super, super busy all the time. That, that was one thing that came out of it that was quite positive. That's awesome. I love that. I mean, as a huge music fan, it's always interesting to hear how people get into it and what they start to pick up. So I really appreciate you writing this book and taking the time to talk to me about your experience. How can people learn more about you and get a copy of your book? Well, I first want to thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. And like I said, Making the invisible visible is just some of the most important work. So thank you for having me on um, for what you're doing. Um, so the book is called The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. You can get it on Amazon. You can, I think the best place to go right now is just search IndieBound. And IndieBound is a way to get it from independent booksellers. And independent booksellers are just having just a horrible time right now because of the economic situation. And so if you can get it from either your local independent bookstore, or if you go to IndieBound, it'll just direct you to either a local indie bookstore or uh, another one that they recommend. And you can also get it on Audible, the narrator of the book. I, I do a little bit of the narration, um, but it was, it was too difficult to do the whole thing. The narrator, uh, it turned out totally by coincidence, is also a Wilmy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, wow. she's reading it like in the booth and was like, wait a second, <laughs> this is me. <laughs> and then you can also go to my website, which is uh, Sarah with an H, marieramey.com, sarahmarieramey.com. 
yeah, in the past it would have had, you know, upcoming events or things like that. But right now, <laughs> we'll tumbleweed flying across that, that page. But uh, someday in the future, there will be events and there will probably be uh, virtual events. And we're going to probably start setting things like that up and I'll put that on my website. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.